So I still can't think of any good way to start this Restless episode, so we're just going to dive right in. I'm Father Joseph, and welcome to Restless. You've joined myself, Carmelina, and Joe, and also you've joined Paul. Not the Paul, but another Paul, a guy named Paul Brenner, who happens to be a religion teacher at a local Catholic high school and also a youth minister at a local Catholic parish. And we're grateful that you've joined us because today's topic is kind of the state of religious education in the church and how do we hand on the faith to the next generation? You know, it's, I mean, a lot of people wring their hands and I've met so many, you know, parents who are, oh, why, why is my kid, you know, not having the faith handed on? And, you know, part of that's because CCD is not the greatest invention since sliced bread. Maybe since sliced cheese, I'm not sure, but definitely not sliced bread. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just want to kind of want to hear, like, what what was your experience growing up uh, in terms of your religious formation, whether it was good, bad, indifferent? Like, did you go to public school? And Paul, like, you had mentioned over break that you had gone to a number of different schools. Tell us about some of the, the school experiences you've had. Growing up, I went to a lot of different schools and a lot of different types of schools, um, mostly diocesan Catholic schools, but several of those. Uh, I was also homeschooled for a year. I went to... So you were, were you part of like the School of the Year Club? Like, <laughs> went to a different school? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just even between, I think between fourth and eighth grade, I went to a different school every year. Oh my gosh. Wow. And so I got a, a lot of different, um, I got to take a little bit from all these different uh, styles of teaching, you know, some were alternative schools, some were alternative uh, private schools. schools. Isn't that for like kids that get kicked out of regular school? Sometimes. Let's that. <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear more about your backstory. <laughs> and um, so, but I also got to see so many different teachers and so many different kids and so many different cultures. Was that kind of rough? Like, like trying to make friends at like um, school every single it's year? It's definitely more difficult than just, you know, having the same people. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I think figuring out a, a social landscape and choosing who you want to be friends with and becoming their friends isn't rocket science. And, you know, we naturally know how to do it as humans. So um, <laughs> tell that to most millennials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was before, uh, before smartphones too. So that made it a little bit yeah, that's true. A different landscape. That's true. Um, so you were homeschooled too. I was just, just I for was. a year, just for one year. And I was already, I think 12 at the time. So it's kind of too late to start at that point when you have two boys and they're both unruly. <laughs> and so uh, it didn't, it, you know, it didn't work as well as a, a structured school mm. um, just because we were sort of too old to to try to You missed that formation piece, then. yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I, I actually, I've, not a lot of people know, I was homeschooled for six years um, starting when I was 12. And oh wow! Sixth to twelfth grade or seventh to so, twelfth grade. So was your? I'm assuming it was your mother. Yeah. And was yeah. she really strict? No, not at all. Not oh. at all. But you were just. I'm just a type A personality. A good kid. Okay. okay. I wouldn't say I'm a good kid, but okay. But you wanted to learn and succeed. I just wanted to get out of school. And you want? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I went to a pretty awful Catholic school for three years. Okay. Which will remain un, un, uh, unnamed, I guess. Uh, was well, not around here. Oh, you know, okay, I grew up down okay. in Maryland, so okay. uh, nobody, none of our listeners would know where that school is. Yeah, it's it's really strange how uh, it's remarkable how some schools are are doing so poorly with the religious education piece, and some schools are doing so well. Yeah, and uh, it's a it's a big question mark on what's the answer because every demographic is different. Uh, you know, the needs of every parish and every school are different, and um, 
Well, you had mentioned that that nuns had a big impact in your. Yes, yeah, yeah. Nuns are, um, I think. So was that in high school or one of the? No, this was in uh, fifth grade, and I think nuns are one of the um, the best real life uh, exemplifications of self gift. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to look at a priest or a nun and say your entire life is meaningless because if you know if if you deny Christ, then then uh, a you know a, a priest or a nun is their life is meaningless. You don't even get it. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And, and in the Catholic school I went to for three years, I never once saw a priest or a nun. It was right across the street from the church, and never once did a priest ever come over. I think that would have made a difference in my life to have seen or getting to know, gotten to know a priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even around here, the, the schools where the priest is really involved in the school, uh, I mean, that makes a big difference. It does, yeah. So Carmelina and Joe, you guys did not go to Catholic school, did you? No, my, my formation was pretty abysmal. It, I had CCD when I was younger, and then I went to a public school that was pretty progressive, and then I went to public school for university and then for grad school as well, which was also pretty progressive. So, so, like, what do you remember from your CCD classes? My most vivid memory is I just remember feeling like I didn't want to be there. I was interested in lunch, which meant that it was over. <laughs> yeah. So You had it in the morning? Brutal. Yeah, it was in the morning. 8 a.m.s I think, on Ooh. Saturdays, something like that. Oh, it's a lot of so, stuff I'd rather be doing at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. I felt the same way, and I wasn't really a morning person either. So <laughs> I, I don't really think I made many friends. I remember gluing cotton balls onto pieces of paper. Why? I don't know. But I wasn't really, really Gotta make the it. Lamb of God. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done it. We've all made the Lamb of God with cotton balls. That's probably what it was. Yeah, that's probably what it was. So it, it wasn't great. I, I received a lot of formation when I had actually reverted back into the Catholic Church when I was in grad school and I had met focus missionaries that were very well formed and so did you go through RCIA at that point no no so just because I had received all of my sacraments it was just a matter of learning the faith really because I knew nothing I didn't even know Jesus was in the Eucharist that's how poorly formed I was Mm. and yeah it was and then I once I started discerning religious life through the convent, I received additional formation, and then it just it just became this thirst to learn about the faith and the church, and it it was great. So I, there's still more for me to learn, but I think that I, I definitely received most of my formation relatively recently. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was reading, um, a reading a, it's actually a really terrible book, and I don't even remember the, the title of it, but it was about somebody... From the, it was written in the 90s about re- the state of religious education then. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, a, there was an incisive statement that just made me both laugh and cry at the same time. Because this guy was talking about how adult reverts often come back and they say, oh my gosh, like, why didn't you tell us about the Eucharist? Why didn't you tell us about this? Why didn't you tell us about that? And the, the author who would, like, you know, it was a priest who had worked in Catholic schools for like 25 years said, we did tell you. You yawned. Right. right. Exactly. You know, it's like you, you you probably did receive all of this, but it didn't matter at when you were seven, eight, nine, ten years old. It's just only once the light bulb goes off that it's like, mm. oh my gosh, this stuff's out there. Right. Yeah. yeah, I um I never went to a Catholic school in my life. Um I went to CCD from first to eighth grade, public school all the way through otherwise, including college, which uh, my, I went to Marist College, which was a Catholic school at one point, but 
Um, alas. Alas, after the council decided against it, I guess. Um, <laughs> one reason or another. Um, Let's take a vote. Are we Catholic? Yeah. Well, it was actually, the, the, the president at the time was a Marist brother who left, who left the order was permitted by the Marist to stay on as president and then subsequently left the, left, led the college to not become Catholic anymore. Oh. Well, there's got to be a lesson in there somewhere, right? Um, <laughs> but, um, but anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that was my formation was CCD. And it was, I don't remember much from it. I remember being terrified of the tests it would have to take at the end of the year that I wouldn't pass it. I'm not really sure what the repercussion for not passing would have been, but um, nonetheless, I was afraid of it. And... Yeah, I mean, there are some bright spots, particularly towards the end. And I'm a CCD teacher now. I think most of my actual formation came after CCD through relationships with people and through, you know, UCAT studies and youth group and whatnot. Yeah, that relational piece is so important. And I think when you have a relationship with your CCD teacher and you just see a bigger community that's living out the faith, mm-hmm. you see it as so much more effective. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Paul, like now that you are a religion teacher in a Catholic school, like what is, what do you see from the flip side? If like, what's, what works, what doesn't work? Interesting. Well, Joe, I, I think it's great that you're a, a catechist. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Um, and uh, you probably have learned more about the faith just from having to teach it, right? I've, I, I realized how little I knew about certain specifics because it's one thing to be able to like repeat what you heard Bishop Barron say once, right? Or like what you read in a catechism once. But when a kid says, well, okay, but like how come X, right? Like why, like one kid um, like pushed back one time on, like why, why, would it, why would it not be dumb for God to like forgive a terrible like murderer or something like that? And it's like, oh, wow, yeah. Why is God's mercy, why is the fact that God's mercy is so available to, to us good, you know? So yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot through teaching. Absolutely. Partially because I think you have to, make yourself capable of teaching. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, and I think uh, some catechists forget uh, how much a gift it is for them and their own faith. Absolutely. um, To to have to deal with the material every day of their life. What a blessing. Um, And uh, I think uh, Bishop Caggiano said it best. He said the purpose of Catholic education is to help kids fall in love with Jesus Christ. And uh, a lot of schools, as their mission, you know, they're a Catholic school, but their main mission isn't evangelization. Um, um, But some would argue that there's a link between catechesis and evangelization that's pretty difficult to, uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to sever those two things completely. Well, I think you make a good distinction there between evangelization and catechesis. Because evangelization is really for the heart, catechesis is for the head. Evangelization is that that trigger that makes you interested in learning more about Jesus. And even, you know, you go, go to Matthew 28, Jesus makes that distinction himself. He says, go make disciples of all nations, that's evangelization, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You sacramentalize after they're evangelized. Right. And then go teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, the catechesis piece. And that's really how it was in the early church, was evangelize. So your heart comes alive. So you acknowledge that you need Christ and you believe in him. Then you get the sacraments. Then you get catechized. Now it's kind of like all jumbled together. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned the early church, Father, because maybe you can help me with this one. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of the church, in the very beginning, I've always tried to calculate how many followers Jesus had. And, you know, in 
Twelve. Uh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Everybody else kind of ran away, and I mean, even eleven of them ran away at the crucifixion. Uh, but um, in the early church, say before the ascension, we we have you know Saint Paul referencing one one crowd of five hundred coming to see Jesus, and it seems as though they were probably convinced about who he was. And then, you know, 3,000 being baptized in Acts. So in the very early church, I think it's safe to speculate that there were at least a couple thousand Christians, sure, maybe as many as, say, 10,000. And then over the next 300 years, there's this great persecution, and that's a long persecution until the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. How many Christians were left? If you're starting with less than 10,000, say, roughly, and now tens of thousands are killed over the next few hundred years, long persecution, how many are left? Well, And scholars think it's in the millions, three million Christians. How do you go from less than 10,000 to three million over a 300-year-long, almost, persecution where the punishment is death? Well, as Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is the right. seed of Christians. And I think I think the short answer is is one by one. They were, this is, the souls were one, one by one through accompaniment, through people inviting them uh, to to meet Christ. They were, and then ten years after the Edict of Milan, it went from ten percent of the Roman Empire to about ninety percent of the Roman Empire. Was that a major conversion of heart, or was it politically expedient? Right. to become a Catholic at that point. And that's where, for the first time, you get Catholics who are Catholics for reasons other than belief. Right, right. And then... The, Which is what we see in... Priests started having, like, roles of prominence. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, now that's the same thing as we see now. Oh, I'm Catholic because my grandfather was Catholic. Not because I believe any of it, but just, you know... Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. I, I did not have this experience personally, but I know a, a priest who I, I know very well went to Italy and he was having this conversation with this guy and I'll say it in Italian and it makes sense. But, um, so he asked this guy, you know, are you Catholic? Si, 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 certo, certo, certainly, of course I'm Catholic. And he said, well, do you go to mass? Oh, padre. Uh, so uh, I'm going to screw this up. Sono cattolico, non sono fanatico. Right. <laughs> I'm a Catholic. I'm not a fanatic. Right? right. So of course you're, if you're Italian, of course you're Catholic. Right. right. Whether you believe any of it or not. So yeah, that's, I, mean, so that's I think, the question I think in, cultural Catholicism is better than nothing because it at least gets your family into mass now and again, and then maybe somebody in your family will become devout, or at least there's that link where if you're if you're opened up, um, and and you you already believe in Jesus, and you know you maybe have had your your first sacraments, you're more likely to baptize your child and maybe maybe put them into uh, into some catechetical program, maybe Christ will reach that. Christ has more opportunities, maybe, to reach them. Um, and I know a lot of culturally Catholic families where one kid just became very holy uh, and very close to Christ, but may not have had that link without. But I, obviously, Christ can reach them through that, any. That's other way. true. I'm looking over at Joe right now, who is finger willy nilly over there. <laughs> who, is, who is that <laughs> example? But Carmelina made a face, and I'm curious what that face was all about. Oh no, I just it was a face of agreement. Like I oh, was see it? that in my yeah, <laughs> like it was. It. It, looked, no. it looked like disgust to me. No, but I no, wasn't no, sure. no. Sorry, no. It was it was of agreement. I definitely think that you know that 
even though I wasn't interested in the faith at a young age and I didn't pay attention when it was being taught to me and I just didn't care and had different priorities, that it wasn't so unfamiliar to revert back into the church. It wasn't such a shock to the system as it might have been for, because I was in the Protestant church. And so when I came into the, the Catholic church, I was familiar with it rather. And so I think that's why it was harder for my Protestant friends to understand how could I be Catholic? But it had been at least a small piece of my life in sort of a cultural, traditional way that it's like, yeah, of course, of course. Why not? Now I understand. Now I understand why I was there. And I think the graces of, of that, of those sacraments that I did receive, even though I, I probably shouldn't have and I didn't even know what I was doing, I think those graces probably came through when I did finally, it was a head and heart thing versus just like, oh, I have to do this because my parents said I should go to mass, hmm. which means much more than just doing it because you feel like you should. That's interesting. I, I have a very different opinion, but Joe looks yeah, like one. I, I want to say something that's going to blur the lines between rant and point because <laughs> I, I, I get where you're coming from, Paul. And I, I think you're right to an extent, which is that for a lot of the kids that I teach, the last like chance the church has with them is and when they're in eighth grade or soon sixth grade when they're confirmed, and then maybe they'll get married in the church one day. And so I, I, I think that it is we should we should take that as an opportunity to evangelize. But I think the reason we're using the word evangelize to describe Catholic people in Catholic institutions comes from this, which is that, yeah, we have these culturally Catholic people who um, get married in the Catholic church because their grandma won't go to the wedding otherwise, and then baptize their kids because it's not no really skin, no really no skin off their back and then send them CCD because their parents want their grandkids to be Catholic and you end with end up where we're trying to evangelize people who are Catholic that's not what evangelism is supposed to be it's supposed to be for the for, to bring people into the church and we end up at this point where religious institutions are operating as if they have evangelized people to catechize and they don't they have non-evangelized people who they are trying to teach Aquinas to. It makes no sense. You end up in this weird situation where you have kids who are nominally Catholic who don't know that Jesus loves them, that he is God consubstantial with the Father, that he's in the Eucharist, any, any very, very basic things, and they can't ask their parents questions because they're uncatechized. And so it's like, yeah, um, to an extent, am I happy that, that people are there? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I wish that they could ask their parents questions because I see them for 24 hours a year. And I'm not going to make any difference in their lives if they go home then. And it's like, Mom, Dad, um, my CC teacher told me that it's actually a mortal sin to skip Mass on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's, I mean, that's whatever. They have to tell you that. That's what the book says. But I wouldn't worry too much about it. What good am I doing then? Right? So it's mm -hmm. like, wh why did the church grow so much under persecution? Because it mattered. One thing the early church wasn't afflicted with is ambivalence. You can be ambivalent about Christ if you're going to be killed for following him. That's the biggest thing afflicting the kids I teach. I'm sure it's the kids afflicting, afflicting the kids you teach too. Ambivalence. They don't care because why would it matter to them whether Christ exists or not? It makes no difference in their lives unless they choose for it to. End of rant. <laughs> Glad you wrap up your rant with an end of rant. Important to be clear about what part helpful. of the podcast we're in. <laughs> helpful to know. But actually that goes to something that Paul was saying uh, earlier before we recorded this episode about how, how one of the factors in your own choosing Christ was the reality of the afterlife. Share a little bit about like that, about what you used to think in, like when you were a kid. Oh yeah, well I you know the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven and hell and and how we're supposed to think about these things daily. And and it really gives you a different perspective on how you're going to live each day when you're constantly thinking about eternity. Yeah. And and you you actually you said you used to think about that I, well, like yeah, even as a kid. It was just given a gift of having some good 
spiritual reading materials and having good people around me as a kid to at least uh, move my mind in the right direction. And, and all of these great saints that write some of the greatest spiritual works ever, it's, it's, they all have a very similar first chapter or introduction where they were saints in different countries in different centuries that spoke different languages and probably didn't have access to each other's writings, and they all start their books with, you know, this first foundation and principle that I am nothing without God, and uh, this life is short. And and they're simply there to just remind you of that. Life is short, yeah. It's funny, I, I guess I received a similar grace. I can remember being about nine years old, sitting on the rock out in front of my house, thinking, man, life is going by so fast. <clears throat> and now that I look back, I'm like, dude, I was nine years old. What was what's wrong with me? But it's it was a grace, I guess, to think like this life matters because it's short and there's going to be an eternity. And right, right. And so we have a pretty limited time as individuals to figure out how can I get this gift that that I received of just knowing the meaning of life, knowing um, who Jesus is, knowing about heaven and hell, and and the the very simple simple formula of how to get there. How can I get this into as many other people's minds as possible before I die so that we can all be in heaven together? And, uh, and it's, the answer is really different for everyone. And that's the difficulty is, is figuring out um, in which way is God calling me to bring souls to him. And there's this great, I don't know where it comes from, but this little story of, you know, when you get to the pearly gates and Peter's there and, you know, we, not literally, but, um, (laughs) and Peter's there, he looks behind you and says, well, where are the others that you brought with you? Mm. And, you know, father, you're a great example, literally in the flesh of somebody doing that every day. So thank you. Well, when I was ordained, a priest, the priest who vested me, they always kind of give you a great embrace after they put the clothing on you. And he said to me, bring a thousand souls to heaven with you. And I thought that's a really good insight, and we should all strive to do that. But one of the things you're when you were talking, I'm thinking is, um, have you ever heard of the, the distinction between ethos, pathos, and logos? Yes. So in, in public speaking, there's kind of three elements that need to be get, gotten across for a public speaker to be effective. Uh, the ethos is, you know, is the public speaker living what they're saying? You know, you don't uh, a chain-smoking doctor giving you medical advice. It probably would not follow that, you know. Uh, logos does he is he competent in what he's saying okay you may be somebody who's very holy but do you like know the faith are you talking about the faith and ultimately it's pathos right it's, it's is what how is this going to impact my life and that's the question a lot of kids perhaps are asking is you know all this stuff i keep learning about jesus well who cares like, why do i care why do i care what why should i care and I, yeah i ask my students that all the time why should i care about any of this and i let them answer and they're they're you know they're they're so much smarter than you think in the beginning. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And so, how would like I don't know how how do you get that across to young people or to people who are questioning like how why should I care about all of this Catholicism business? One thing that occurred to me late because I, I remember like when I really I know I really went through a conversion when I was in eighth grade 
And um, I remember thinking for a few years after that, like, I don't get why everybody doesn't just do this because like, it's fun. Like there's Frisbees involved and pizza. And like, <laughs> it's not that hard to be a good Catholic, it seems. So like, why doesn't everybody just do what I'm doing? It seems so easy and fun. I didn't realize how dumb that was for many years because I kind of just missed all of the like carrier cross and, you know, all those those things. And like, I'm um, as we're wrapping up the year for my confirmation, it said to them, you know, we had lessons on like the Beatitudes and on the Corporate Works of Mercy. And I was like, guys, you know, this isn't going to be easy, right? And like, the way the church is calling you to live is very different from the way you're used to living because your life's not actually just about you. And I think that to some extent, like I think a lot of young people want to like care about things, want a cause to fight for. A lot of the kids, my even my eighth grade and seventh grade classes know about politics, are very worked up about things. And then we tell them, well, Jesus loves you. So go make a poster about it. We'll see you when your kids get baptized. And it's like, no, you actually have a radical call to like change the world and to do all sorts of crazy good things for Christ. And like that like call to action, I think, is something that's really lost in a lot of people. It's lost in me for years, mm. you know? Mm. Just glue uh, cotton balls on pieces of paper. Yeah, it turns out that's not enough. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> i put it this way. Darn I'm it. sure somebody told me that Christ was present in the Eucharist before eighth grade, but all the posters I must have made didn't seem to get the point through my head until I was about that age. So, you know, how many years <laughs> were wasted because I was too busy making glue popsicle sticks together? You know? But, it, oh, go ahead. Come Lena. No, I was just going to say, sometimes I think you know, life has a certain way of of happening to where you have to get to a point where you question, why does this matter to me? And th- and that's what happened to me. And you you have a choice whether or not you continue living the way that you're living or you can choose Christ and live very differently. And I think that's the point where people who are faithful need to actually live out the faith and kind of identify maybe people who are on the edge because I think living out the faith is the most important thing because when that person does hit that point to where they need to potentially turn to Christ, they need to know who to go to. And living it out counterculturally, you know, because mm-hmm. I often hear that 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 quote that's attributed falsely to St. Francis, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And people misuse that quote to say, well, I don't need to talk about Jesus as long as I'm a nice person. Right. Nice people are not going to convert the world. People who are radical and countercultural will. St. Francis was very radical and countercultural. You know, so it's when you do things that the rest of the world, you know, it's when you're, you're open to life and you have a bunch of kids. It's when you're, um, you know, you're willing to turn your back on your friends because they're all drinking and smoking weed. And, or and that's, it's when you're in middle school and all your friends are gossiping and you are the one who says, guys, this isn't right. Stop gossiping about him or her. Yeah. It's ra- radically different for somebody that age, but it's so important. Yeah, it's when, it's when you say to your sports, your soccer coach, no, I'm not going to go to practice right. on Sunday morning because I'm going to match. Like that's, that's the countercultural witness when it costs something that St. Francis, if he ever said that, would be talking about not just being nice and getting along. And I, I don't know, sometimes I, I like to believe that when we live out our faith, even if someone is outwardly against it, that we all have, since we were made by God, we do have an inclination to be drawn to goodness. And that goodness would come through. And, you know, you hope that when people see, like, I think people say it when they see the Sisters of Life, it's like there's just something about them, right? There's something about them that draws people in, that draws people close, that transforms, and it's God in them. So yeah. even if we're not outwardly saying anything or preaching to people, it's the life that we live, Jesus will come through in that. And I think that brings souls to us, especially when life gets hard, because they sense when things become chaotic, they sense a stability, a peace, a calm, and naturally someone you know, suffering with whatever maybe drawn to that. But you make a good point that that there has to be kind of that thirst. Yes. You know, you can't, everyone, 
CCD teachers and priests and everybody, you know, religion teachers are, you're offering the living water, but if there's no thirst there, because life's going really well and you're really happy living your life without God, why do you need God, right? Exactly. It's only when you have that crisis moment or that that inner yearning, like there's got to be more out there. That's when you start seeking. Is the thirst only a grace, though? I mean, everything's grace, but... That's something I think about, though, right? Because <clears throat> faith is a gift. Mm-hmm. So then, like, okay, so those kids who are totally don't care at all what I'm saying in class, is that because they haven't been given this gift? And if not, why not? You know what I mean? It can be very challenging from a teacher. I'm sure you experience this all the time. Like, there's this one kid in one of my, my Sunday night class who, you know, he was just so disruptive. And he started just asking to go to the bathroom, and he would disappear for, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> the kids would be like, uh, you know, you notice Connor's not back yet? And I was like, guys. Don't pay attention here. Don't pay attention there. What's the difference? Let him let him stay in the bathroom do TikTok for half an hour. Like he's not gonna, he's not gonna listen to me. Let him not listen to me over there. But like, so. But then I would think about it afterwards. Big. Like, well, why isn't he interested? There's something that's not clicking. Is it me or is it that he hasn't been given this grace yet? And like, if not, why not? It's a very difficult thing for me to grapple with because it makes me sad to think that some of these kids are just gonna fall off the face of the earth because they may not have been given a gift of grace or a gift of uh, faith. Excuse me, or, or or the thirst that you're talking about. Yeah. I think it's two things though. I think faith is a gift and a choice. Mm. Hmm. Because even if sometimes we don't, we struggle with Jesus. I'm having doubts. It's you have to choose to believe sometimes. And our Catholic faith teaches us that every human being receives enough grace to be saved at some point in their life. So we can't blame it on. Oh well, God didn't give me the gift of faith, so that's why I'm condemned. No, I mean, unfortunately, we've ran out of time. But we're going to continue this on a future episode. So <laughs> stay tuned because Paul looks like he wants to say something. <laughs> Tune in next time. For right now, you know, first of all, pray for the grace of faith, not only for yourself, but for the people in your family, for your your kids, your grandkids, for your siblings, for anyone else who may have left the church or is just simply seemingly not interested, that their thirst may be, uh, you know, just increased so that they desire the living water. And as much as we can, let us live our lives in such a manner, so radically given over to Christ, that others are attracted to Christ through our example and through our love. You can find us on Veritas Catholic Network, which is 1350 AM, and also on FM Dial. I think it's 103.7. And you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in next time.